Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and today we have a special program for you because we are going to play a documentary that was created by none other than our audio engineer for this podcast, Chris Williams. So you have heard his masterful work in our audio engineering. And now you get to hear his voice and some work that he did a few years ago on the topic of abortion. Chris, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Doug. So our listeners will know that we just did an episode from a group of females who talked about abortion. And if you haven't listened to that episode, please go back and listen to it. Uh, We were kind of playing fun a little bit with the fact that people on the left think that if you're not a woman, you shouldn't have an opinion on abortion and with the obvious implication that you will certainly be pro-choice if you're a woman because it's all about women's rights, et cetera. And so we have uh, three pro-life women talk about why they're pro-life and talk about abortion. Uh, But you brought to my attention that you had a documentary that you had done about five years ago while you were in school. So tell us a little bit about the backstory, and then we're just going to play that as as the rest of our episode. Yeah, thanks. Um, So I went to audio school at the Art Institute of Austin. Kind of funny story. I'll give you a real quick backgrounder, but I started out as a politics major at Hillsdale College Um, And that's where I met my wife. And the two of us actually met on the bus to the March for Life in 2011 from Hillsdale to D.C. So um, we bonded over that. And we've both been very active in pro-life activism. Uh, We donate to our local pregnancy resource center, Agape, here in Round Rock, Texas. And uh, we go to any march or protest that we can and pray about it and fund other pro-life groups and just generally talk to people about being pro-life as much as we possibly can. And uh, anyway, though, um, I transferred down to the Art Institute of Austin uh, because I actually took a hiatus from school in 2012 to work a political campaign and decided I shouldn't be working in politics as a libertarian (laughs) because it's it's, uh, pretty tough out there for libertarians, and I'm a no-compromises type of guy. I'm an anarcho-capitalist, so I'm as, as far libertarian as they come. So uh, anyway, when I was in audio school, uh, we just had this assignment to create uh, more of an audio documentary than a podcast, but I mean, it absolutely works as a podcast. But it was very open-ended and because this is such a important cause to me and something that's always on my mind. Um, I just jumped on the opportunity to create a documentary on the topic and, uh, we kind of hit it from several angles. Um, I just open up giving like, you know, a standard case against abortion, uh, use some arguments from the theologian, Peter Kreeft. And, uh, then I also interview, a friend of mine who actually had an abortion many years ago, but got saved and since becoming a Christian has been a very active pro-life activist. Um, But I also pulled an interview from a podcast I used to be on back when I was in school that's since uh, 
died off, but my co-host interviewed a friend of ours named Rachel Barkley here in Austin. And uh, she talks a little bit about how she had a miscarriage and how she was always pro-life, but having that experience and, you know, holding her very, very young baby in the palm of her hand, you know, just was a transformative experience for her as well. So we got those those powerful testimonies in that documentary, uh, aside from just my case against it in the front end. Well, I am glad that you're offering us this documentary for us to kind of share as sort of a bonus. You know, we don't normally talk about the same exact topic back to back or very close to each other. We kind of give listeners a variety for many months and then kind of circle back around to some important topics. But it is timely to have this discussion right now. It's going on in politics with certain laws having been passed in certain states. And so, you know, it's 2019 is the year to, to have this conversation. Um, so it's it's really good that you're offering this to us. So we're going to let that play. And thanks again, Chris. Thank you. to the case against abortion. I'm Chris Williams. Abortion is currently one of the most controversial and emotional issues in America and has been since the beginning of the landmark Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade in 1972. With both women's rights and the potential slaughter of innocent unborn children on the table, it's easy to see just how much potential for division this issue has. However, with this documentary, I hope to set the record straight, not only in your heart, but in your mind. In any good debate, the opposing parties must first agree on a set of underlying assumptions. In this debate, we'll accept only two. First, we must accept that universal truth can be known, at least through empirical evidence via the scientific method, and through logical arguments where each point proceeds directly from its predecessor, that is, with no non-sequiturs or gaps in explanation. Second, we must accept that universal truths on moral and ethical matters, as controversial as they are, can also be known. They can be deduced empirically and logically and also sometimes discerned from personal experience. With these two basic assumptions in mind, we can proceed to the three core premises of the case against abortion, most clearly articulated by renowned philosopher and Catholic theologian Peter Kraft, professor of philosophy at Boston College in Massachusetts and King's College in New York. Listen now as he articulates these points in his debate with agnostic philosopher David Boonin on April 30th, 2010. One more preliminary remark. I've got to tell you where I'm coming from. Not only am I anti-abortion, but I think that it is not a complex issue. 
I think that if abortion isn't wrong, there are very few things uh, that can be securely said to be wrong. So I'll start with the essential argument for that conclusion, which seems to me to be a very simple and strong and clear argument. It has three premises. There's a philosophical premise, there's a scientific premise, and there's a legal premise. Most moral arguments have the same kind of structure. One of the premises has something to do with values. It's an ethical premise, and that's a division of philosophy. The second premise has something to do with fact, which common sense and observation and science tell us about. Only if you combine those two things together do you get an ethical conclusion, because you can't get a conclusion about values unless you have a premise about values. So there's got to be a factual premise, but there's also got to be a value premise. And then finally, there's a premise that's what you might call legal, uh, a practical premise, which is really not a necessary premise to the main argument, but a corollary. Because if you put the first two premises together, the philosophical premise about values uh, and the scientific premise about facts, you get the conclusion that abortion is wrong. And then as a corollary, is it legally wrong? Well, you have to make an additional argument from it's morally wrong to it's legally wrong. And therefore, there are three possible pro-choice options to deny any one of these three premises. The philosophical premise is very simple. It is expressible in terms of Kantian ethics by either of the two formulations of what Kant calls the categorical imperative, the supreme principle of deciding moral right and wrong. The first one is basically the golden rule. Act only on that principle that you can consistently will others to act on. In other words, do unto others what you want others to do unto you. The second premise then would be that you don't want others to kill you. You don't really wish that your mother had aborted you. And therefore, if you're a mother, don't abort your child. That seems very, very simple. Or a little more deeply and more complexly, you could use what Kant calls the second formulation of the categorical imperative. And the moral premise there would be all persons, all rational beings, are ends and not means, and to be loved and respected as ends rather than used as means. And then the second, the factual premise, would be that unborn children are persons. The conclusion would be they must be treated as ends rather than as means, as entities with intrinsic value rather than instrumental value. And then, rather obviously, killing another human being does not treat that human being as having an intrinsic value. Uh, Kant thinks that all basic moral imperatives can be deduced from his single categorical imperative, such as thou shalt not kill. You don't want other people to kill you, don't kill them. The difference between the two versions is the difference between rights and right. If you say that all human beings have an inherent right to life, as our Declaration of Independence does, and then you add the factual premise that unborn children are human beings, you conclude that they have an inherent right to life. Then it's very easy to add the third legal premise, law must protect fundamental human rights, and the right to life is the most fundamental right of all, therefore law must protect it. If you use the other version, if you say, for instance, deliberately killing a rational being, a human being, who is not threatening to kill you, is murder, and all murder is wrong, and abortion is murder, it follows that abortion is wrong. But that's just morally wrong. You need another argument to prove that this moral wrong is also a wrong that ought to be illegalized. So when we talk about rights, we get an easy transition to the legal conclusion. When we talk about what is right versus wrong, we need an extra step. With regard to agreeing or disagreeing about this 
basic philosophical premise, namely that all human beings have a right to life. The way that pro-choice people usually attack that premise is to say that although our unborn children are human, they're not persons. What's the relation between human beings and persons? The word person has two different meanings. It has a legal meaning. That is, uh, those whom the law designates as persons are legal persons. But that's not the meaning that I think we want to argue about here, because that's simply a factual question. In different countries, different human beings are given legal personhood and others are not. In Nazi Germany, for instance, Jews were not persons. In the United States of America, according to the Dred Scott decision, blacks were not persons. They were property. That's why a runaway slave had to be captured and delivered back to his master, because property cannot own property. Most of us would say that those two regimes were inherently bad, but nevertheless, some human beings were declared not persons. I think we want to argue whether our unborn children are philosophical persons, or ontological persons, or metaphysical persons, or persons in their being, rather than simply whether the law grants them the status of personhood. So if you ask that question, are all members of the human race persons, or are only some members of the human race persons, you get two possible answers, all or some. That's rather very simple. If only some humans are persons, then you're drawing a line between those humans that are persons and those humans that are not persons, and you must justify the line somehow. And that, I think, is extremely difficult to do. Personally, emotionally, in terms of your motive, it's very easy to do. People that you don't want to exist, you can call unpersons, uh, and then that justifies killing them. But that's not what we're debating. We're not debating psychology. We're debating philosophy. So to summarize Dr. Kreef's argument, under the philosophical premise, we not only have an argument for the right of unborn children to life from Kant's first and second formulations of the categorical imperative, but also an argument for intrinsic human personhood. To further explain this second argument, we must assume all humans are persons, for if some are not and others are, the line between them must be arbitrary. The U.S. Supreme Court in Dred Scott v. Sanford in 1857 defined black people as non-persons. Skin color has no bearing on one's humanity. The German Nazi Party defined Jews as non-persons. Religion and ethnic heritage have no bearing on one's humanity. The U.S. Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade, 1973, defined unborn children as non-persons. Age, size, level of dependence, and physical location have no bearing on one's humanity. Since all humans are persons, they all possess the same intrinsic value and are entitled to the same rights, especially life. Now listen as Dr. Kreeft articulates a third philosophical argument from pragmatism. If you are unconvinced by all these arguments, then the question is, what is the default position? You either approve abortion or you don't. I think the default position has to be a pro-life position. Here's the reason why. There's only two possibilities, objectively. Either that thing that you abort is a human person with a right to life or it isn't. And there are only two possibilities in your mind. Either you know what it is or you don't know what it is. So there's only four possibilities. It's a person and you know it. It's a person and you don't know it. It's not a person and you know that. And it's not a person and you don't know that. So what is abortion in these four cases? If it's not a person and you know that it's not abortion, abortion is fine. In the other three cases, it's not. If it is a person and you know that it's a person and you intend to kill it, abortion is murder. If it's a person and you don't know that it's a person, but you kill it anyway, knowing that you don't know that it is a person, that's manslaughter. 
That's like running over a man-shaped overcoat in the street, thinking that it might be a human being and it might be just an overcoat, but you don't know. Or like shooting at a movement in the bush when you're hunting, and it might be a deer and it might be your fellow hunter, but you don't know. Well, don't shoot, for goodness sakes. Third possibility, it is not a human being, it's not a human person, uh, but you don't know that, and you shoot anyway. Well, that's not manslaughter, but it is criminal negligence. If this room had to be fumigated, and the fumes would kill little children, and they asked the janitor, are there any little children in that room? And the janitor said, oh, I don't know, I don't care, just fumigate. If there was a child in the room, it would be manslaughter. Even if it's not there, it's criminal negligence. So if you don't know, for God's sake, don't shoot. As Dr. Kraft points out, the only case in which abortion is justified is when the thing being aborted is not a child, and that fact is fully known. Thus, whether or not an unborn child, fetus, embryo, diploid, zygote, or whatever you want to call it depending on its stage of development, is indeed a living human being from a scientific standpoint, is a critical fact in this debate. Listen now as Dr. Kreft succinctly explains his scientific premise in one of his many lectures at Boston College. The life of each individual member of a species, at least of mammal, begins at conception or fertilization. That's when a genetically new and genetically complete individual first comes into existence. You got your genetic code at that moment. That's a truism that was taught in all the biology textbooks in America that were written before Roe v. Wade in 1972. And I haven't been able to find any biology textbook except those written by Christians for Christian schools that repeated that after 1972. Yet the new textbooks did not appeal to a single new scientific discovery to justify their change. It was purely political. I'm not suggesting that the textbooks were written by pro-choicers. I was suggesting that the textbooks wanted to avoid political controversy. So the first premise of the pro-life argument is that all humans are human. Whether they're embryonic humans or fetal humans or infantile humans or young humans or even teenage humans. <laughs> or mature humans or old humans or dying humans. Second premise is that all humans have the right to life because they're all human persons. All humans have human nature, whatever that is. They share the human essence. We're all essentially human. We're very, very different from each other, but the way in which we are the same is much more important than the way in which we are different. Finally, Kreft's legal premise is equally succinct and easy to grasp. It's fairly easy to deny the legal premise. I'm personally against abortion, but I wouldn't want to impose my will on others. Abortion is an ugly reality, but forbidding is even uglier. I want to ask those people, why is abortion ugly? Why are you personally against abortion? Just because there's blood there? Are you also against all surgery? If the reason you're against abortion is that you think it kills an innocent human being, how can you say you don't want to impose your will on others? What about slavery? I'm personally against slavery, but if you want to keep slaves, that's okay. I'm personally against rape, but I wouldn't want to see laws against it. Nobody says that because they are perfectly willing to specify why they're personally against it. So to be personally against abortion, but not to want to institutionalize that opposition by law presupposes, I think, that abortion is a purely subjective thing or a trivial thing, the kind of thing we wouldn't want to impose on other people. I hate Starbucks coffee, but I wouldn't want to forbid you to drink it. Well, I hate abortion, but I wouldn't want to forbid you to have one. The legal premise is simply that the most fundamental function of the law is to protect basic human rights. And the court said, we don't know if the fetus has a human right to life because we don't know if it's human. So from a legal point of view, we'll not legislate because we don't know. 
Now, that argument, we don't know when human life begins, therefore we shouldn't outlaw abortion, is a valid syllogism only if you add the implied premise. This is called an enthymeme in logic, a syllogism in which one premise is enthymemic or kept in mind. That's the literal meaning of the Greek enthymos. And what's kept in mind is the premise, if we don't know when human life begins, then we shouldn't outlaw abortion. That's the general principle. Then we don't know when human life begins, therefore we shouldn't outlaw abortion. That seems to me to be a very strange argument, because both premises are false, not just one. First of all, as I pointed out before, we do know when human life begins. At least everybody did before 1972. It's not a controversial moral or legal question. It's simply a scientific fact. Secondly, the principle that if we don't know when human life begins, we shouldn't outlaw abortion is a very strange principle. That's equivalent to saying, if I don't know whether you're a human being or not, it's okay for me to kill that thing that might be a human being, but it might not. You say you know so much, you know that every human life begins at conception. I reply, no. Do you know that it doesn't? If we can agree to be skeptical, that's the strongest possible argument for not killing it. These are just a few of the many strong arguments against abortion. I could also include the arguments of other notable philosophers such as Dr. William Lane Craig and Peter Hitchens, as well as the in-depth scientific arguments of expert biologists like Dr. Maureen Kondik. But evidence and logic just aren't enough for some people, so instead, let's listen to the testimonies of two real women. First, listen as Ashley shares her personal experience with abortion. My name is Ashley and I'm from Austin, Texas, and I am a pro-life volunteer, a pro-life activist, if you will. I got involved with that after my own painful experience with abortion. I had an abortion when I was 22 years old, and that was seven years ago. Under the cover of going to school, I decided to run away to Miami and, you know, just go have fun. And I did. I had a lot of fun. Had a few bad relationships. And the one that I'm specifically going to talk about was with the ex-boyfriend whom I had the abortion with. We were not matched well, both very heated tempers. And it was a very tumultuous relationship. A lot of physical and verbal abuse. He abused drugs and alcohol. I dabbled in that, certainly. And... One day after maybe six months of being with this guy, I found out I was pregnant. And the flood of uncertainty and fear all of a sudden just came rushing forward. And it was like, you never really think that can happen to you until it does. And I was faced with a positive pregnancy test and a boyfriend that, you know, we were always off and on back and forth. And I, I told him, and he was kind of indifferent about it. He basically said, well, it's your body. I'll leave it up to you. And I was around that culture, around that social culture that really did focus on, you know, I am woman, hear me roar. And, you know, you're not going to put me in a corner. I can fill the pants just like a man can, you know. So definitely had that sort of influence going on in my life, in my circle that I was with. And I, of course, heard all of the sayings, you know, my body, my choice. It's not a baby, it's tissue. And so my first thought was, well, let me just go to one of these clinics and just see what type of advice they can give me. I don't even think I really thought about abortion so much, like right off the bat. I just wanted to go to a doctor and get help is all I was really thinking. And I didn't know what help look like. You know, I just, they're a doctor and I need help. So I'm going to just go. I made an appointment at this clinic and pretty much right off the bat, 
the, uh, I guess, the counseling, if you will, was very abortion-focused. It was very much, okay, look, you're 22 years old. You're a college student. You have goals. You have dreams. Look at this guy that you're with. He's not really, you know, do you guys think you're going to be together forever? Because if you're not, then, you know, it's probably just not really a good idea for you right now. And and that's okay, you know? And just very much talking me into an abortion without me almost even realizing it, you know, just... You know, when you when someone looks at you and, and tries to sell you something by nodding their head and trying to tell you, oh, yeah, you really want this, right? Or you really don't want this. That's kind of how it felt. And before you know it, I had made an appointment to have an abortion. And I was given no really other options. There was no talk of adoption. There was no talk of community resources that could help. Um, it was just like, okay, when do you want to come in? you know, Saturday morning next week works for us. How about you, you know? And so I just put my name on the dotted line and set up the appointment. And then the next week came, still not really knowing how far along I was because my knowledge of what really went on with my body was very limited. So I don't even know if I knew like how long a cycle was supposed to last. You know, I just knew that this one didn't seem like it was right. (laughs) And that's the only reason what made me check to see if I was pregnant. So I didn't really know how far along I was. They did know ultrasound. This was long before sonogram law, you know, and and I was in Florida. So obviously we didn't have that. And I remember walking in that Saturday morning. It was early. My boyfriend was still drunk from the night before, probably on other substances as well. And I remember walking into this clinic. It was kind of a downcast morning, very cloudy, very solemn Walking in, it was a very dark waiting room. I remember uh, some girls lined up sitting around, you know, kind of waiting. I was called back. They got me prepped. And I started to have an intense feeling of fear of uh, what am I walking into right now? Like, I remember just crying, but not really thinking about it. It was just the tears were just falling down my face. And I felt really like I wanted to put my heels into the ground and kind of like back up, like, wait, 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 wait. I I don't know if I really want to do this, you know? And the nurse, you know, patted me on the back and told me it was fine. And, you know, it's a five, 10 minute procedure. You'll be done. No worries. You'll do fine. And so they laid me down on the table and they gave me a, um, a kind of a general anesthesia, which made me loopy, certainly, but I was still very much awake for the procedure. I remember the abortionist coming in and him telling me that it'd all be over soon and just try to relax. And then he, uh, he turned on the machine. And the, the machine has a very distinctive sound, and it's a sound that has stayed with me this entire time. It's very loud, it's just, it's a hard thing to describe, um, but it's a scary sound. It's very loud. It's um, very invasive. And I started crying immediately as soon as I heard the machine come on. And he turned it off and he said, you know, you need to relax. This is going to be over soon. You'll be fine. Just relax. You won't feel any of it. And then he turned it back on. And I laid there and I could see what he was doing. And I could see the blood running through the tube, I guess you could say. And when he said it didn't hurt, that was a straight up lie because it hurt unbelievably. I mean, it it hurt 
extremely bad. I remember wincing and, and twisting my body and, and him just kind of telling me that, you know, it's almost over, just calm down. And just seeing the tube turn red, you know, and just everything flow into this little container. And then it was over. He put the instruments down. Now, now these instruments, I, I've come to do a little bit more research on these instruments. And the actual machine itself, the suction machine, if you will, has 20 times more suction capability than a household vacuum. And so that's what they were using on me. And then you top it on with the pain and the sound, and, and it, it just makes for one frightening debacle. But the nurses helped me up after this was over and took me to this recovery room. And I went into this recovery room, and uh, I just remember, you know, maybe seven, eight, nine recliners all kind of lined up against the, the wall next to each other, one after the next. And they were all full of girls and there was one that wasn't, and that's the one that they were leading me to. And I was really out of it and pain and just remember wobbling kind of as they held me from both sides to guide me over there. And, you know, I sat down there. I sat down in the recliner. They gave me an ice pack for my groin, and then they reclined me, you know. So I sat there. I kind of laid there just trying to come out of this loopiness that I was in. And as I was coming more and more out of it, the girls, the other girls in the room were just sobbing. It was not like a, a little small whimper. I mean, it was like you were in the throes of just mental and emotional breakdown. It was as if their bodies had just been taken over um, with grief. And that's another image and sound that also stays with me. So I laid there. I don't know how long I laid there, but there was this one girl in the recliner next to me. And I remember her, you know, holding her ice pack and looking over to me and reaching her hand out and taking my hand in her hand. And then she just cried and said in a, in a very weak voice, you know, are we going to be okay? And I was just in kind of this state of shock. I, I don't even know if I answered the girl to tell you the truth. I just kind of looked at her almost with like tunnel vision, just not really seeing anything else, not really hearing anything else, but it just didn't seem real. It didn't seem like the world that I was in at that moment just didn't really seem real. So we held hands for however long we cried together. And then eventually, after a designated period of recovery, they uh, released me. I remember, you know, getting up, still very sore. The sedation had worn off. I was feeling more of my pain now, but I was able to somewhat walk. Nurse was helping me down, down the hallway. And I remember running into the abortionist and he was at the front desk checking on something. And then he looked like he was headed back my way. And as he was headed back my way, he kind of put his hand on my shoulder and said, I did great. And not to worry um, that I'd be able to resume normal activity within 24 hours told me that it was a very good idea and that he highly suggested that my boyfriend and I go and do something fun to take our minds off of it. And then he suggested that we go to Disney World. And I just remember kind of looking at him and just kind of confused by the whole thing, like, okay, Disney World. And he's like, you know, and don't worry, you, you'll be able to resume any adult cocktails if you wish, also within 24 hours. So, you know, don't be afraid to enjoy yourself. And, uh, I was like, okay, thanks. And then he raced on past me and I went out and my boyfriend was passed out in the waiting room on the couch. I woke him up and then we got in the car to go back home. And in the car, I told him about what the 
doctor had said, and, and I hate to call them doctors because I feel like doctors help people and I don't feel like this man helped me. And by and large, many abortionists are really just that, abortionists. They're not, they don't practice anything else. You know, this is what they do. They go from clinic to clinic to clinic, and that's what they do day in and day out. So yeah, I, I really don't like to call him a doctor because I, I don't feel like he helped me in any way. But anyway, I told, I told my boyfriend what he had said, and then the next day we decided to go to Disney World, as weird as it sounds. So within 24 hours, I was at Disney World after having an abortion, and we drank until oblivion, and it was just an odd, odd thing. When we got back and kind of got settled back into our daily lives, things got even worse. Our tumultuous relationship took on new heights, and it just got worse and worse, and we argued even more, and he would throw the abortion kind of in my face, telling me I wasn't a real woman, I couldn't take care of a child, and I murdered my baby. And then I would also throw it back in his face. I'm not trying to paint myself as a victim picture. I would definitely throw it back in his face as well. And physical abuse started, and it got very bad. Substance abuse went to whole new levels. And I mentioned before that he was very much involved in alcohol and drugs, and I dabbled in it. Well, my dabbling turned into hardcore addiction. I would go on three, four-day binges where I would just stay awake that whole time, doing whatever drug I could get my hands on, mixing that with alcohol. There was one time that I'm thinking of right now that I, I actually literally woke up in a legit crack house in downtown Miami. And then with the binges came the hibernation post come down. You know, I would come down and then just hole up in, in our apartment for days on end, not speak to anyone. My family was very concerned. Of course, I didn't tell them what was going on. They didn't know. And then my suicidal thoughts started. And was it just the abortion? I don't know. Was it the abortion and the drug usage and the alcohol usage? I'm, I'm sure it was a combination of all those things. But I could very, very much vividly picture my car just driving off of, of this bridge that went to and from the, the town that I was in. And I tried to overdose a couple times. So yeah, I would probably say that the suicide attempts were probably about three times, I would say. And then it was the end of May, 2007. The boyfriend had already left me, well, had gone by this time. And I all of a sudden woke up one morning and it was almost as if I was hearing this really powerful voice. And I don't want to sound crazy, but it really was. I was almost, it was really like I was really hearing this voice it was more than just a feeling. It was more than my heartstrings tugging. I can't describe it other than it was a really loud voice that said, Ashley, you need to leave right now. You need to get out. And um, I didn't know what it was. I didn't grow up in a Christian household. I didn't grow up with any sort of like faith background. I think my parents would say they're Christian, but they're not. So I definitely didn't grow up with any sort of background like that. And I tried to explain this voice in my own way. But whatever it was, it was a, it was a very strong voice. And within a week of hearing that, I left Miami. And this is four and a half years after I had been there. So I had been there for quite a long time. I had built somewhat of a life in this place. And then within one week of hearing this and this having this intense feeling come over me, I left and I, uh, I went back home to my parents' house in Gainesville, Florida. During the time that I was spending with my family, I ended up meeting my now husband. 
And he played a very integral role in my life because it was a turning point. He was a Christian. He is a Christian. I had never really had too many good experiences with Christianity. You know, I had I had grown up kind of in the South. The Christians that I was surrounded by hated gays, you know, and, you know, I had a gay best friend growing up. And so I couldn't before that, you know, but he was different. He was a different type of Christian. He was loving. He was kind. He was compassionate. He genuinely cared about the people he was having interactions with. And so the more and more time I spent with him, the more I became very interested. When I met his family, they were just so loving and so caring and just, I mean, they had beautiful souls. And so it really gave me a fresh outlook and a a fresh perspective, so to speak, of Christianity. And I began wanting to know more about who this Jesus person was, you know. And it was February 2008 when I accepted Christ into my life. And, you know, I didn't have all the answers right then. I was still kind of feeling it out, but I knew in my heart that this is something I wanted to do. I wanted to know and have a personal relationship with Christ. And so I've been on this journey since then, really trying to figure out God and figure out my place in the world and my purpose. And so that brings me to today. You know, now we're in Austin, Texas. His job moved us out here. I knew that he had forgiven me for my abortion. I still didn't really visit that topic a whole lot because I just kind of wanted to, okay, I'm forgiven, great, move past it. But I was feeling God's nudge that I really needed to recover from this. And I didn't really understand what recover meant because I had accepted the fact that I had an abortion and that was wrong. But I guess I just hadn't really let myself feel everything because I had stuffed it away for so long. And then someone suggested that I take an abortion recovery class. And it just started pouring out of me. It was just like this intense healing. I felt like I was finally free from all this stuff that I had been stuffing. And I felt more healing than I even knew I needed. The power of God in all this is just overwhelming to me at times. I feel Him so much. And it's it's breathtaking. And so I'm in a much better place now, and I'm very thankful for all the people in my life that have made that happen, and more importantly, for God who made that happen and really finally shook me out of whatever I was doing to myself at that time. So that's why I do what I do now. I try to go out to the sidewalk, pray for not only the girls going in there, but I pray for the clinic workers. I pray for the abortionist. I pray for those lives that are being lost every day. I I pray that they have a change of heart in what they're doing and realize that abortion is not health care. People may go into working in the clinic thinking that they're doing good, you know, because society is telling them that they're doing good. And, you know, they can be young and impressionable in college as well. So, yeah, I just pray. I pray for their hearts. I pray that they can realize what they're doing is not, is not a great thing. And I also, as much as I can, try to reach out to the girls that are going in there. I hand them information about adoption, about maternity homes in case they need housing. Some of these homes will house them until two years after the birth, you know, while the moms get back on their feet. There's education classes that help them to get a GED or some remedial college classes to help them start getting ahead. The pregnancy resource centers that can provide them with diapers and formula and clothes and just everything that you can possibly think of. And just to let them know that we love them and that we're praying for them and that there's true options out there. Because the most ironic thing I hear from post-abortive women is that they'll say, well, I didn't feel like I had another choice. And so I don't really know how people can call that pro-choice because so many women feel like they didn't have another choice 
So they made the appointment for the abortion. And they don't need to do that if they have all their resources. One of the things that I've really felt led to say is circumstances are temporary, but your decisions are forever. And that usually gets them to at least think about what you're saying. Because as humans, we can't see into the future. We don't know what six months down the line is going to bring. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. So your circumstances are, are very temporary. But these decisions to not have a child, to take away your child's life, those are decisions that are going to last your entire life. And it may not be in six months that you regret this abortion. It may not be six years. It could not be until you're 50 years old, but there's going to come a point where the walls are going to come crashing down and you will regret this because this is a child's life. Listen now as Rachel Barkley shares how she became convinced of the reality of life in the womb. Um, Basically, uh, last year, my husband and I uh, lost a baby at 16 weeks. And uh, when I went to the hospital and delivered the baby, even though I was 16 weeks along, the baby was 14 weeks because I had carried him for two weeks. And seeing him absolutely changed my world because I, even though I've had two children, have two young children, I just, I really did not know how formed and developed and how, um, I don't know. I just, it it was shocking. And the phrase that I heard immediately was we have been deceived and, and it is, it was a random thought, right? You know, we're, we were very much filled with sorrow and grieving and, um, you know, overcome with emotion. But I just, I knew that I had that thought for a reason And ever since um, that, I just knew that God was going to do something with that experience. And so uh, he is. I started writing songs just because I'm a believer and God was ministering to my hurt through through that experience. And uh, I had this really incredible God encounter in that hospital as well in the midst of, you know, that loss, that grief, just a God encounter that I don't know, just re-anchored, re-solidified my, my trust in him, even in that. And from that, God just started um, inspiring these songs. And uh, some of them are from that experience, and some of them are from just the past couple of years of season that we've been walking through. Um, and from that, uh, one day I was praying outside of a clinic, and I just God just dropped this idea in my in my heart to, you know, why not give the proceeds to the cause of buying an ultrasound so more women can see, you know, crisis pregnancy centers are available for women who are in crisis situations, but a lot of them either are using old equipment or don't have the equipment. Um, but just giving that visual to women, you see that heartbeat, you see that, that form, you see that baby. Um, and for, most women, not all, but most women, that seals the deal. They, they choose life from that. So the idea behind the project um, is really just giving God glory for what he brought us through. But then also our son, we named him Aaron, you know, he, his life, though it was incredibly short, it, it served a purpose. And um, I'm going to, to the best of my abilities, take that, you know, that message of how fully, how formed, how incredibly uh, childlike he was at just 14 weeks. Um, And uh, yeah, and so there's a song on there um, and it's called Say Yes. And uh, it's basically from the viewpoint of, you know, two women find out they're pregnant 
And it's just trying to convince them to ha- that they do have the courage, they do have the strength to say yes to life and to follow through and uh, either give the baby up for adoption or go ahead and parent that child as their own, which it is. Um, so, so yeah, so there's, I have a lot of excitement surrounding that song. It was the last one that we wrote, even though that wasn't the only like the main crux of the, of the project, but um, God has such a humor, such a sense of humor to give it to me last minute. So um, so yeah, that's that's the idea behind the project. Awesome. So you're going to use the project and erase funds for a sonogram. Um, I think I saw a statistic not too long ago that on those sonograms, three out of five women who go in and get a sonogram before the abortion, three out of five of them that are that are sort of abortion prone will will change their mind and and keep the child so a phenomenal absolutely phenomenal well is, is there any place do you have yeah. a a web page or a facebook page or if someone wants to follow you or learn more about the album how, how can they do that sure yeah we have a facebook page um and for now that's that's what we're using so it's just rachel barkley you can just search it rachel barkley on facebook and how do you spell um, barkley b-a-r-k-l-e-y Rachel Barkley. Fantastic. Well, hey, thanks for taking a few minutes to talk to us. I think it's very exciting and uh, best of luck to you. God bless you on the project. And I hope you raise a whole lot of money and uh, buy a sonogram and we'll see what we can do to help out as well. After hearing these powerful testimonies and the strong factual and logical arguments that preceded them, I hope you will genuinely examine your own stance on abortion and what you're doing as a result of it. I'm Chris Williams, and this has been The Case Against Abortion.
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.